Well, hey, good morning, Harvest. How we doing? Grab your Bibles and find in the Old Testament a, a small book by the name of Habakkuk. If you don't know where it is, go to the uh, end of the Old Testament. You're going to go back maybe 20 pages or so. There's four little books, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. Right before that is a three-chapter book called Habakkuk. If you don't have a Bible, uh, just raise your hand. There's ushers coming down the road. We're going to be bouncing through a lot of this small book this morning, and um, I think you're going to want a Bible in front of you. A uh, couple things. If, were you guys watching the videos? We, our production staff makes those videos every week, and um, if you were watching the one this morning, it's kind of interesting. Did you sense, like, right in the middle of it, it kind of took a dark turn? Did you feel that? Like, like it started, and it was um, kids eating cookies and decorating trees and ice skating and sledding, and then there was this nice fire, and then the next thing you know, there's, like, scorched earth and bombs going off. Did you notice that little subtle shift? It's interesting, whenever you're going through a season of Advent and you're looking at words like hope, peace, love, joy, we're talking about those things in the room, but the reality is as soon as you leave this room and we go out into our world, we see a lot of brokenness. There's a lot of contrast to the themes of Advent that we study in this room. I was given this little book. It's written by a guy by the name of Bob Lapine. I like little books, by the way. And um, it's called The Four Emotions of Christmas. And if you go to the table of contents, he says, here's the four emotions of Christmas. Disappointment, stress, sadness, and joy. Hey, good news. We're going to go off through chapter four, joy today, okay? That's what we're going to be hunting this morning as we work our way through the book of Habakkuk. But here, here's the interesting thing. Joy is something you have to hunt for. The other three, stress, disappointment, um, sadness, they kind of hunt us, don't they? But we're going to be looking at this idea of joy. We are going to be um, looking at a, uh, a prophet who has seen some things in his life that should steal his joy, that actually do steal his joy. But we're going to see the shift in his perspective over the course of just a couple chapters. The big idea this morning is simply this. Joy is only safe when it rests in Jesus Joy is only safe when it rests in Jesus. That's the argument that I'm going to make. Hopefully that's where we land um, this message this morning. Hopefully you found Habakkuk. I'm going to start right in chapter 1, verse 1. Here's what it says. It says, the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. Now, now that word oracle, it basically, if you translated it literally, it means the burden that he saw. So sometimes as a prophet of the Lord you have to say some things that are, that are heavy that people aren't going to like. And then what happens in verse 2 is Habakkuk's got some questions for the Lord. He, he's seen some things that have confused him. Listen to what he says in verse 2. He says, O oh Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you look idly at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. No justice goes, so justice goes forth perverted. So, so just a little background on, on where Habakkuk is in history. He is at the end of the tribe of Judah. Judah's going to be overthrown by a country by the name of Babylon. They're also called the Chaldeans. That's going to happen in like 605 to 586 B.C. Jerusalem's going to fall. And 
Habakkuk is prophesying right before the fall of Judah. He sees five kings in his lifetime. The first king that he sees is a guy by the name of Manasseh. One of the things that I like in the Old Testament is you study some of the kings, their life is always summarized in one phrase. They did evil in the sight of the Lord. They did righteous in the sight of the Lord. Manasseh did evil in the sight of the Lord. Then he had a kid by the name of Amon. He took the throne next. Amon was only there for two years, and, and he was worse than his father. He did wicked in the sight of the Lord, and then it goes on and says he abandoned the Lord. And after Manasseh and Ammon, there's this guy Josiah. This is basically when Habakkuk prophesied during the reign of Hobiah. And he, uh, Josiah, he was a reformer king. And what Josiah does is he takes the throne at a very young age. He goes into the temple that Solomon built 300 years earlier, and this, it's abandoned. It's dilapidated. It's, it's completely hasn't been maintained. And he goes in and he says, we're going to fix this place up. And he finds the law. And, and his life is summarized this way. He did righteous in the sight of the Lord, and he didn't turn to the left or to the right. So, Manasseh, or so from Manasseh to Ammon to Josiah, has a prophet, he sees great revival. Habakkuk sees a complete reversal in the heart of the leaders and the heart of the nation. But Josiah is killed in battle. He dies in a battle with the Egyptians. And then what follows him is his son Jehoaz, says he did evil in the sight of the Lord. And then he reigns for only three months. And then his brother takes the throne, Jehoiakim. He's going to be the last of the kings of Judah. And it says he did such evil in the sight of the Lord that he is basically leads the nation into captivity in Babylon. So in all of that, Habakkuk has seen a nation that is turned from the Lord. He has then experienced revival and then he has now witnessed the nation go back not only to where it was, but actually worse. And he's got some questions for the Lord. It's interesting when we taught this, we taught the book of Habakkuk, I think we spent five or six weeks in it, maybe eight, nine years ago as a church. I love the story and the book of Habakkuk. But back then, we had a graphic that we used. Can you put that up on the screen? This was our graphic for that series. It's one of my favorite graphics that we've ever used. It's just like, why God? And you've got this stick guy that just lost his ice cream cone. Sometimes life makes us question God. God, what are you doing? Why are you doing these things? So this was it. Habakkuk's got some questions. And in those first verses, he basically asked these questions. God, how come you're not listening? Where are you? Are, are you paying attention? Are you seeing this? And then why aren't you answering my complaint? Like, if you see it, how come you're not doing anything about it? Why are you sitting idle while I'm surrounded by chaos? And, and, and then it gets real personal. He's like, my circumstances are unbearable. The things that you're making me see, I can't take it much longer. Like, what I'm witnessing, I'm looking at injustice. The law, it's paralyzed. It goes forth. It cannot penetrate the darkness. I told you about the kings of Judah. Here's what's going on in the surrounding nations. There's three world powers at play while Habakkuk is prophesying. Egypt's still hanging around. They're the guys that killed Josiah. Assyria is the world power of the day. They've overthrown the northern kingdom a hundred years earlier, but they're also in decline. And there's this uprise of a nation. They kind of come out of nowhere. The Babylonians, 
So Israel, it's hard for us to imagine because we're one of our world's superpowers. But if you're Taiwan, if you're Ukraine, faced with threats from superpower nations, Kristen and I have friends, they live in Israel. Their dad was a general. They both served in the military. The wife was a trainer of sharpshooters. They have three sons. They all served and are serving in the military. They have a daughter. She's serving in the military. In Israel, if you're an Israeli, you wake up every morning and your first thought is, are we at war and with who? That's kind of Israel and Judah, surrounded by world powers. Habakkuk has seen some stuff. He's been praying for some stuff. He's been pleading with the Lord to move, to work. And it's like the Lord isn't hearing. He's not responding. Anybody ever feel that way in this room? Anybody ever pray for something for more than a day or a week? Just just raise your hand if you've been praying for something maybe for months and you're waiting for God to answer. How about a year? Five years. How many of you have been praying for the person next? No, I won't do that. You can put your hands down. Okay, sometimes we feel this way. This is very, very relatable to us. He's been praying for some things from the Lord, and the Lord is not answering. And based off his questioning and the tone of the language, somewhere along the line, he's lost his joy. Let's keep going. Look at verse 5. Verse 5 is one of my favorite verses in the entire Old Testament. God answers the prophet. He says this in verse 5. Look among the nations and see. Wonder, be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you wouldn't believe or you wouldn't, that you would not believe if told. Other translations, it says, astound yourself, be astounded. I'm not asleep. I'm seeing what's going on. Your perspective is limited. I am working, and if you could see the way things really are, if you could see the things, the world, the way that I see the world, you would be astounded. It would be unbelievable what I am accomplishing. I'm telling you what, man, that that verse, that's got to be on coffee mugs. Somebody start printing that verse on coffee mugs. Habakkuk 1.5. We need to be reminded of that every morning as we make our coffee. That God's on the throne, he's in control, he's doing a work that we wouldn't believe if we could fully understand it. I think the reason it isn't on coffee cups more often is what follows. Look at verse 6. I'm doing this work that you wouldn't believe if you weren't told. And then he's so excited. It's like, and behold, let me, let me tell you what I'm going to do, Habakkuk. He, he, he shows his cards, he tips his hand, he says, behold, I'm raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breath of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. Okay. Here's what he's telling the prophet. You're not going to believe what I'm going to do. It's so exciting. It's so great. It would astound you. I'm going to raise up the Babylonians, and they're going to crush you. Merry Christmas. Like, like that's the view that he's giving them, which is going to raise some questions for The prophet should probably raise some questions for us. Like, does God actually use wicked people to judge the righteous? Does he do that sometimes? He's raising up the Chaldeans to bring judgment on Israel. Just just look at the description of the people that he's going to use. Look at verse 7. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. 
They're swift, their horses are swifter than leopards, verse 8. They're more first, fierce than evening wolves. If you don't know what that means, just go home and Google National Geographic Wolves Hunting. It's terrifying stuff. They're smart, they're cunning, they're strategic. They pick out their prey from the herd. Some of them will chase while others rest and then they'll trade off. It's nuts. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At At kings they scoff and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own might is their God. So interesting, these Chaldeans that he's raising up in that last verse, he says, their might is their God. Like like, like they trust in their own strength. Do you remember how this description started in verse 6? God says, I'm raising them up. Evil men being sent to accomplish God's purpose for the righteous. Sometimes God does that, which has some implications for us today. That unbearable boss... That parent that's driving you crazy, that neighbor that is just psycho about his lawn and so critical of yours. Those people that when you see them, there's like you clench a fist just because. God might be using them to get a hold of your heart. That's what he's explaining to the prophet, but the prophet doesn't like it. So the prophet will go on after that answer by God. We read it in later in chapter 1. He says, are you really going to use those who are more wicked to judge the righteous? Why would you do that? That doesn't seem fair. And God, if that's the way that you operate, quite honestly, what you're explaining is life's just random. We're all just like fish that you catch in a net and you throw some this way, some that way. If you're going to judge the righteous with the wicked, then I don't understand it and you've got some explaining to do. And at the end of chapter 1, we read this. The prophet says, I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and I will look out to see what God will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaints. So he's like, hey God, I want to hear from you again. Like like, like explain this. I've got some questions. In chapter 2, God answers Habakkuk the prophet a second time. He says this, and then the Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to it ends. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It'll surely come. It will not delay. And then speaking of his prophet, he said, Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. So God answers his prophet Habakkuk, and here's what he says, if I could summarize. He says this, You don't know everything. Your perspective is limited. I don't answer to you. I'm God. You're not. And hey, by the way, Habakkuk, why don't you live by faith? Why don't you show a little faith in the God that you claim is your God? In essence, what's happening here, though it has escaped Habakkuk's notice, is this. God is trying to use the circumstances to get a hold of the hearts of his people and his prophet. But too often we go to the Lord and what we say is, We need you to change our circumstances. We're not all that interested in having our heart affected, our heart changed. Okay, jump over to chapter 3. I don't have time to go through chapter 2. We're just going to get to the resolve of this. Look at chapter 3, verse 16. Oh, man, I love this sound of 
pages turning, screens being swiped. I love all of it. Chapter 3, verse 16 says this. Habakkuk says, I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Okay, so how's our, how's our boy doing? How's he feeling in response to everything God has to say? He's terrified. He's terrified of this prophecy. Everything in him is cringing. That's what he feels. Look what he resolves. Goes on and it says this. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon the people who invade us. So again, what he said here is he said, I'm really scared. I'm frozen with fear. Yet I will quit questioning the Lord. I will make a choice to believe what I know is true in spite of what I currently see and in in spite of what I might currently be feeling. And I'll tell you what, this becomes for Habakkuk the foundation of lasting joy. Look what he says next if we just go to the next verse, verse 17. He goes on and he says this. He says, though the fig tree should not blossom nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail and the fields yield no food. Okay, so... I grew up in suburban Chicago, not much of a, a farmer. Any of you guys grew up like on farms? Okay, so maybe you can help me. What happens if there's no fruit in the field? What happens next year? Aren't you kind of short on seeds? So if there's no fruit in the field this year, that means there's going to be no seeds for next year's crop. Then he goes on and he says this. If the flock be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls, again, no farmer, but if the sheep don't like each other, if there's no loving in the barns, that means you're not going to have any offspring the following year. In, In essence, he's painting a very, very bleak picture here of Well, well, things seem to be bad now, but based off what the Lord is telling me, they're going to get a whole lot worse. My circumstances are not going to be solved. The problems aren't going away. And then he says this. By the way, can anybody relate to that? You ever ever feel that way? You you ever just look around at the world? It seems like any screen that we look at in the news, we're, we're so connected to technology You see everything today. You see all the carnality and depravity every time you turn on the screen. It's just what we're exposed to in our modern world. And sometimes you get so discouraged by everything you see. It's like the word of the Lord, it's paralyzed. It's not making any difference. This thing isn't going to get any better. And and by the way, if you can't say amen to that, you're either, maybe you're just young or you're not paying attention, or or you're the guy in the room that actually lives in a snow globe, I don't know. But for most of us, we can relate to those emotions at different times. Look what he says. He says in verse 18, Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, or God the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on, the high, on my high places. 
the whole deer analogy, here's what he's saying. I won't stumble. I'm, my joy is going to be based. It's going to have a foundation. It's going to rest on something that is secure. I'm not much of a hunter, but in the last few years, I've taken up hunting. If you just observe deer in the wild, it is amazing how sure-footed they are. I've never ran into a hunter in all my time in Michigan who was like, hey, I got a deer. How'd you get it? Well, I was just watching it, and the thing got clumsy, man. It just fell over, and I shot it. I've never heard that story. They're, they're, they're majestic. They are so sure-footed. And he's saying, that's my joy. I'm rooting it in something that is secure. I'm not going to stumble. It's not going to be dependent on my circumstances. And then he closes the whole thing with this phrase, to the choir master with stringed instruments. So you look at the whole prophecy of Habakkuk. I don't even know what that means. Was that just like the last two verses, 16 and 17, that he wanted to make into a song? Like, I could understand that, but if it's the whole book and that's like the end of the book, like put this to music, that's a country song. It's, it's dark, man. <laughs> okay, let, let's get to the application. That's the story of Habakkuk. Let me be as clear as I possibly can on where we can have a joy that won't fail. Let's start with this. There's two common ditches, I think, sometimes in our search for joy or our hunting for joy that we fall into. Here's the first one. Don't get distracted. Don't get distracted. Don't let temporary things block your eternal perspective. If you're not sitting at church, if you're in downtown Grand Haven and you're in downtown Spring Lake and you're just chatting with people, you're going to run across people who are atheists. They don't believe in God. And if you ask them why they don't believe in God, you're going to come back most often to the most common reason that they give. It's hard for me to believe in a God. I can't believe in a God who would allow this, who they look at the brokenness and they say, if there's a God, I don't want to believe in him. It's easier for me to believe that there isn't a God. This isn't a new line of thinking. There was a Greek philosopher by the name of Epicurus he was a Greek philosopher who lived 300 years before Christ. Look at this quote. He said this, Is God willing to prevent evil but not able? Then he's not omnipotent or all-powerful. Is he able but not willing? Then he is... He's not nice. Okay? I worked on that word. I mispronounced it last night. I failed at the exact same point. I talked to people in the back of the room. I'm like, how do you say that word? And they said malevolent. And then they also pointed out to me, and oh, by the way, it's worship, not worship up. So sometimes I need help with words, okay? But if God is, allows it, if he's able but not willing, and he's evil, if he's both able and willing, then once, or uh, is he both able and willing, then where does evil come from? Is he neither able nor willing? Then why call him God? And it's interesting, from this Greek philosopher, 300 years before Christ, there was a whole movement that began. They were called the Epicureans. You ever heard of them? L let me jog your memory. If you go two blocks to the west into the middle of the revitalization of Spring Lake Village, what is the center called? Epicurean Village comes from this. And what the followers of this philosopher decided was the greatest virtue, the highest pursuit that you can have is the pursuit of pleasure. Because if there's no God, nothing else matters. Can I point out a couple of problems with this? Here's the first. Science isn't on your side. It's very hard to believe in a world where order came from chaos, where there's intricate design without a designer. 
And I don't care how many billions of years you put on it or how many multi-universes that we have no evidences of that scientists believe in order to make the probabilities work of a world that evolved without a God, science is not on your side. That's problem number one. Problem number two, if you don't believe in God, and this is actually more important, if you're going to not believe in God, well, where does that leave us? If you don't believe in God, that means the universe was, came into existence without purpose. It means there's no absolute right and wrong. It means that our existence is just random. In essence, it means that life has no meaning. So if you're going to deny the existence of God, I would really encourage you to be an Epicurean. Seek pleasure with all your heart. Stay distracted. Stay busy. Don't think too deeply. Because if there's no God, where that leads is really dark. It's interesting. Gallup, not a Christian polling organization, but Gallup polled just this last summer interviewed Americans, it might surprise you that 81% of Americans still believe in God. Does that seem high to you? It's actually down 6% in the last five years. In 2017, 87% believed in God. In 2022, 81. Why the sharp decline? Well, I blame politics. I blame Putin. I blame COVID. I blame inflation. I blame Detroit and Chicago sport teams. There's, there's a lot of things you can, you can blame, okay? There's a lot of brokenness out there. But still, four out of five people believe in God. Here's my question. Of the four out of five that believe in God, I wonder how many like them. I wonder how many actually trust him. At times, let's be honest, you look around and you wonder, God, if you're good, if you're gracious, what are you doing? Why, why, why is the world this way? And here's the thing that I don't want you to miss in the story of Habakkuk that I think is most remarkable. It's not only what God says when he responds to his prophet, it's the very fact that he responded. The prophet called on him and he answered. He's listening, he's interactive, he's personal, he's relational. And some of you are like, I wish he'd answer my prayers. I wish I'd hear the voice of the Lord. He did. It's called Christmas. If you could see things from God's perspective, he's already reached out and solved your greatest need. He's bridged the gap that sin caused between creator and creation. Don't think he hasn't listened to your, pri to your cry or to your prayer. God answers our prayers all the time. He just doesn't always answer the way that we like. There's four ways that God answers prayer. Here's one. He says no. Hey, God, would you change my spouse? No. Hey, would you fix my wild animal children? No. See, those things that you want to have changed, those are the very things that I'm using to get a hold of your heart. Paul says in the New Testament, he, he had an ailment. He called it a thorn in the flesh. Three times he prayed to get it removed, and God said, no, I want my grace to be sufficient for you. Sometimes he says no. He's using those things in your life to get a hold of your heart. I am so thankful for parents who said no to me all the time. They loved me enough to say no. Sometimes you pray, and God looks at you, and he's like, are you talking to me? Are you talking to me? I was talking to my daughter, Nico, She's in the back of the room. We adopted her from Romania when she was six years old. And one of the interesting things is when we adopted Nico, she would talk to us, but she talked to us in Romanian. We didn't understand it. 
she thought she was adopted by the stupidest parents on the face of the earth. So what she would do is she would take her mouth, she'd put it right up to our ears, and she'd talk louder in Romanian. And it wasn't that we didn't hear her. We didn't understand. And sometimes God is saying, like, are you talking to me? Isaiah 59.1, he says this, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ears dull that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he doesn't hear. Sometimes God says, are you talking to me? Like, and, and please hear me. The standard for God to hear your prayers is not perfection, it's pursuit. Jesus, when he teaches his disciples to pray, he acknowledges that they're going to fall short. He says, and when you pray, ask for forgiveness for your trespasses. It's never perfection, it's pursuit. But if you're not following the Lord, if you're not bending the knee, why would you have any expectation that he's going to answer your prayers? So sometimes it's no. Sometimes it's, are you talking to me? Sometimes it's yes. And I would argue that God answers our prayers yes way more than we give him credit for. First thing that happens is we pray for something, we pray for something, and then it happens, and we forget that we prayed for it. We don't give him the glory. God, God answers our prayers with common grace. We, 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 we're sick, we have the flu, or our kid has the flu, or is fighting a respiratory ailment. We're like, man, I hope this doesn't progress into this, and we take him to the doctor, and the doctor gives him medicine, he gets better, and we say, man, that medicine's great. Common grace where we forget to give the Lord credit. He answers our prayers, yes, all the time. And then there's a fourth thing that he sometimes says. He says, wait. I hate that answer. I hate wait. Because God's doing the work. It's interesting, even in the book of Habakkuk, God says, hey, listen, write it down. Wait for it. When we see the heart of the prophet turning, he says, yet I will wait for the Lord. I'll quit questioning. Don't get distracted. And here's the second thing. Don't settle. Don't anchor your joy to things, to people to achievement to experiences that will disappoint it's dangerous it's dangerous for you and it's dangerous for whatever you've anchored your joy to if let, let me explain if, if if i anchor my joy to um my kids or if i anchor my joy to um this church in my case or if i anchor my joy to my job and i believe that that's going to be the thing that gives me joy what happens when my kids go postal? What happens when I get fired or my job is a disappointment? What happens when my spouse doesn't measure up to what I think they should be doing? See, all of a sudden my joy is at risk because I've anchored it to things that were never meant to bear the weight of my joy. It's not just dangerous for me and my happiness. It's dangerous for the thing that I anchored my joy to. I don't want, just by way of example, I don't want to be the foundation or the thing that my wife's joy rests on. I don't want to be that in her life. I can't bear the weight of that. Everything in this world except Jesus can disappear from you in a blink. You can lose your health. You can lose your relationships. So if my wife has anchored her joy to me, what happens if something happens to me? What happens if I die? And you're all like, well, I know you and your wife. She can do way better. Okay, I, I, I'm not, I'm not going to argue that fact, okay? But then she's going to find that great guy 
And she's going to worry the whole time she's with him what happens if something happens to him too. See, when our joy is anchored to anything that's temporal, that can disappear, that can be taken from us, it's always at risk. Don't settle. Don't anchor it to things that can be lost. This is why the big idea is joy is only safe when it rests on Jesus. And by the way, don't anchor your joy to what you want God to do for you. If you go back and you were to look at Habakkuk's complaint, that was the issue. He didn't have an issue with God. He had an issue that God wasn't doing what he wanted him to do. And if your joy is only anchored on what God can give you, quite honestly, I'm scared that you're worshiping not God, but the stuff that you want to see him accomplished, and it's dangerous. And guess what the tell is? You can tell if you're, you know what a tell is? That's the indicator. If you're playing cards, if you've got a tell, that means people can tell when you've got a good hand. Habakkuk tips his hands. He has a tell. And the tell in Habakkuk's life is he's loving what he wants God to do more than God himself because when God doesn't do it, his attitude gets rotten. Don't settle. Don't get distracted. Here's three things that hopefully, if we're hunting joy, will help us experience joy, particularly during this holiday season. Here's the first thing. It doesn't sound real joyful, but let me explain it. Three ways to find joy this Christmas. Here it is. Number one, the mess isn't going away. If your joy is only going to be there when things resolve the way that you want them, hey, it's not going to happen anytime soon. We read in verse 18, the prophet says this, Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. The key word on this point is that first word, Yet. He's already said, it doesn't look like things are going to get better. It's actually going to get darker before we see any light. And he says, in spite of the fact that the mess is not going away, yet I will make a choice of the will. The realization that the mess isn't going away anytime soon. Here's the second one. God is working in the mess. God is working in the mess. Yet, then let's just break down verse 18, I. I like that word, I. It's not we. He's not speaking for the nation. He's speaking for himself. I, I don't care what my spouse does. I don't care what my kids do. I don't care what my friends decide. I don't care what my coworkers or my boss is going to do. I, it's a choice that I make. It's a choice of the next word. I will, in spite of the way that I feel, In spite of my circumstances, I will do this. I will do the choosing. I'm going to make sure that my circumstances, no matter how difficult they are, they're always used to bring me closer to my Savior, and there's always going to be a word of praise on my lips. Listen, I I know what I'm saying is a hard word for some of you. I know there's some of you that say, you don't know what I'm going through. I'm in a furnace right now. Man, I'm in the middle of a storm. I'm in the middle of a fire. And the idea that I would have joy in spite of what I'm going through, that sounds completely out of my reach. Listen, I get it. I get it. Sometimes in life, you are in the furnace. And in those moments, you're like, I don't have the strength, Pastor, to do what you're asking me to do. I get it. That's why we read this. I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take, there's that word, that word we're hunting. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. I will take joy in the God. Why, how are we going to do that? 
Verse 19, God the Lord is my strength. Listen, it's not wrong to pray that your circumstances change, that the disease goes away, that there's a breakthrough in your marriage, in your relationships, that your kids aren't psychopaths. It's good to pray for all of those things. But when the disease isn't cured, when the marriage is still struggling, when the kids are still out of control, what then? What is going to be the foundation for a joy that won't disappear because of your circumstances? Yet I will trust in the Lord. I will trust in the God, or I will take joy in the God of my salvation. And then just a final thing. The mess isn't going away. God is working in the mess. And and maybe set your mind on this for the next week as we approach Christmas. Christmas. The very meaning of Christmas is this. God entered our mess. Emmanuel, God with us. Angels proclaimed to shepherds. Behold, I bring you good tidings of great. What was that word we were hunting again? Joy, right? Joy. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, Christ the Lord. God meeting our needs. God answering our most desperate cry. And sometimes when the world seems dark, we lose sight of the fact that God's doing a work in our day that would blow our minds if we could fully understand it. Let's trust the Lord. Let's trust what's true. Let's keep our joy secure. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this minor prophet 3,000 years ago that seems like he lives with us understands sometimes our sorrows, our pain. Father, give us a joy that doesn't fade because of our circumstances. Father, we thank you for Christmas, your son. It's in Jesus' name we pray.